Milan Cherkovic is a professor at the Astronomical Observatory of Belgrade and the author of The Great Silence, Science and Philosophy of Fermi's Paradox. This is Milan Cherkovic. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right. I am here with uh, Milan uh, Cherkovic. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for your kind invitation and for having me here. Um, you have written a book. Uh, you've written uh, a number of things, but a particular book that uh, you know came out to me uh, that introduced uh, me to your work uh, was this great book, uh, The Great Silence, Science and Philosophy of Fermi's Paradox. Um, very salient question right now for a number of reasons um, and that we'll, we'll get into. Um, but I want to, uh, just to lay the groundwork for this discussion, what is this paradox? Okay, now there are several ways, and I've tried to explicate how it is not trivial to distinguish between various uh, forms of the paradox. But uh, in a nutshell, uh, we can say that there is a tension, if not really a conflict, but a profound tension between our understanding of uh, uh, spatial and temporal scales of our astronomical environment, in particular our galaxy, the Milky Way, and uh, what we know about evolutionary timescales, including, of course, chemical and physical and geological evolution, which preceded the, uh, our appearance on the scene, and of course, in some uh, indirect manner, also cultural evolution, which brought us to where we are right now. So uh, in one sense, uh, we need to be surprised to uh, perceive no traces so far of uh, intelligence or uh, intentional engineering, for instance, or what many people call astro-engineering or mega-engineering uh, around us, created by older intelligent species, older intelligent civilizations, because we have every reason to believe that if there is extraterrestrial intelligence elsewhere in the galaxy, it will likely, very likely, 99.999 etc percent likely to be much older than our own very young very immature civilization well what why is that that it's likely to be older uh okay there are two ways to approach it uh first is just pure logic uh because we have actually just arrived on the scene because we are so young uh suppose that you are admitted to a club it is not surprising that uh, most of people you meet there have much longer experience with the club and have been uh, members for much longer because simply you have just been admitted. So actually your uh, uh, time scale for membership of that club is very short. Suppose that, okay, we can take either the period which was popular in early days of SETI this search for extraterrestrial intelligence projects back in 1950s and 60s, it was popular to say that, uh, okay, we have like 50 years or 100 years since we developed uh, radio communication, so we, we could, in principle, detect uh, uh, technogenic uh, emissions from elsewhere, from other, other uh, civilizations in the galaxy. Uh, we can go back and say, okay, our material culture is like 10,000 years old or something like this, which is minuscule in astrophysical terms. So um, so actually we have just arrived on the scene. So it is uh, absolutely to be expected uh, by on a basis of pure logic uh, that others, if they exist, will be older. But there is also another more empirical element to the story because we now know that the age distribution of uh, stars hosting planets uh, which are possibly habitable and possible 
sites for evolution of uh, life and observers. Uh, the age distribution is uh, skewed in such a way uh, so that uh, uh, basically the median age is uh, much higher than the age of the Earth and the solar system. Uh, actually, uh, there was a series of uh, studies uh, done mostly by the great contemporary astrobiologist Charles Lineweaver of New Zealand, uh, who actually showed that uh, essentially the median uh, age for uh, uh, habitable planet, Earth-like planet in the Milky Way has to be something about, uh, if I remember correctly, 6.4 billion years. That is uh, that is almost 2 billion years higher than uh, the age of our Earth and our solar system. Uh, so if we take uh, the Copernican approach that we are not uh, for some reason uh, some wild outlier or uh, somewhere something which is extremely uh, atypical, uh, if we are anywhere near typical, then we would expect that uh, uh, most of other other species evolved on similar planets, but with much more time to evolve. Naively speaking, we would expect that uh, they had like uh, 2 billion years more to evolve. Now, uh, just imagine what Earth would be or like in two billion years. Uh, so actually, even if suppose that uh, humanity, you know, self-destructs in uh, like ten years, uh, there will be enough time for not one but several intelligent species to evolve uh, in 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 that long time period. Even if we take into account, okay, some secondary order effects, which I'm perfectly aware of, like uh, you know, there is a sort of a increase in uh, the solar output as sun evolves on main sequence so it will not make uh, the earth will not be habitable for like i don't know like five billion years in the future but maybe maybe one and a half or some people say even 900 million years but anyway these long astrophysically relevant geologically relevant evolutionary relevant in biological terms uh, long time scales are simply much much longer than what we would expect uh, be required in order to create a technological civilization capable of making itself known in the universe at large or at least in in a nearby uh, nearby parts of the galaxy uh, so uh, the the thing is that uh, uh, both from purely probabilistic and from empirically astrobiological and astrophysical arguments uh, we expect uh, uh, random extraterrestrial intelligence in the galaxy to be much older now to be much older in its, uh, uh, say, epoch of coming on stage. Uh, of course, this unfortunately does not preclude the possibility, which is real enough, that uh, there is something inherently self-destructive about intelligence per se. So it may be that they have evolved long ago and destroy themselves and that uh, we are likely going to do the same in uh, near future or maybe in some medium future uh, so actually maybe that is an explanation of uh, the absence but anyway there is a problem now there is a problem to be solved uh, now okay if you wish to to be very pedantic okay you may wish to um, make a distinction between a solution of a problem and some kind of a general resolution of, of, uh, uh, of a paradox. Uh, the history simply of uh, our uh, thinking about extraterrestrial life and intelligence is such that uh, people simply have proposed many, many possible resolutions and explanations for for the lack of uh, of perceived traces and manifestations of extraterrestrial intelligence but there is still it is still a problem as in that famous sherlock holmes uh, uh, metaphor there is a, the, the the dog did not bark so 
there is something, there is an explanandum, as philosophers would say. Uh, why is that so? Why that dog didn't bark? And why we apparently look like, at least apparently to us, that we are alone in our, at least in our nearby cosmic environment. Okay, so there there are a few things in there that, that I wanted to ask you about. Um, particularly when, when you brought up this idea of uh, intelligence perhaps being, uh, you know, a lethal mutation where, uh, you know, cockroaches and insects are generally like the most successful uh, in terms of reproduction species on the planet and the uh, the exponential rise in human population is like a, a very recent development. Um, so perhaps this is, and, and so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. When you said that um, these civilizations would, if they exist, be much older than ours, if intelligence is uh, a, a lethal mutation, then it seems like we, you know, there could be a lot of intelligent species that come up die out, come up, die out. And in that case, the distribution of the, the ages of these intelligent civilizations, it, it feels like it might be more random. Is that fair? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, it is. It is fair to say, but there is there, there are several issues there. Uh, okay, the idea that intelligence may be maladaptive characteristic is not really something very new. I mean, it was... I mean, it was perhaps first explicated uh, in a quite clear way by great paleontologist and evolutionist uh, George Gaylord Simpson back in 1964 in, an, uh, in a paper uh, where he criticized actually then uh, quite novel, new and uh, revolutionary in some sense uh, SETI projects like Project Ozma and other first uh, pioneering uh, SETI uh, works like uh, by people like Frank Drake and Carl Sagan and Josip Szklowski and other early pioneers. Uh, so Simpson actually pointed out that we actually do not know whether intelligence is really uh, adaptive or maladaptive because simply it uh, there hasn't been enough time for it to so to, uh, to 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 be clearly demonstrated uh, in terms of evolutionary timescales, because we know uh, when we study evolution, especially, especially macroevolution, uh, we uh, tend to consider evidence, for instance, from paleontology. Paleontological evidence is such that it uh, works only in a sense in deep time. You observe species and then you ask why a species got extinct, but this is something which you know because you know that the range of a species uh, was like four million years. It existed for like four million years or five million years or 10 million years, and then it got extinct. Now, why is why it did get extinct, uh, whether it was some environmental factor or it was simply that it uh, uh, failed to compete with uh, some other species in its ecosystem. But it is something which is simply has to be a kind of averaged over long time scales. Uh, so there wasn't simply uh, such a long time scale in the case of uh, human intelligence, uh, humans as a spe as species which existed for what like 300,000 years or 250,000 years or something like this even if we take into account our older hominin ancestors going back to i don't know uh, the epoch where our lineage split from the lineage of modern day chimpanzees which was about 6 6.5 million years ago it is still a uh, very new development and it is very difficult to assess uh, its uh, uh, adaptive value in long term in short term of course in short term it is obvious that the intelligence is highly adaptive character because after all our uh, ancestors lived in a very small niche in something like, I don't know, like a couple of hundred of square kilometers in East 
Africa in, in, in Rift Valley. And then suddenly due to mostly due to our uh, uh, superb intelligence, we got to cover all over all the entire world and to have uh, such uh, uh, great impact upon our entire biosphere. The impact is a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. There is everything around, so uh, we cannot really be sure. Maybe our uh, our negative impact in form of, say, climate change or like some ecosystem destruction or uh, other things will, in the end, overweight, especially if we help it by, say, engaging in like nuclear war on that, or other forms of irresponsible behavior, which was made possible by our intelligence. Uh, so the, the thing is that, uh, as Simpson said, that we need to, in a sense, wait a bit before we pronounce exactly whether uh, intelligence is really something which is adaptive or something which is maladaptive. Uh, now, if we take a, an optimist view that it is adaptive in long term, that would mean that uh, essentially larger and larger chunks of our physical environment should uh, gradually be managed by intelligent beings as time passes. So actually we have now, I don't know what's the latest data, but you know, like uh, uh, today's humans manage like some huge percentage, like 60% of uh, our planet's land area is directly or indirectly uh, shaped by human activity. Uh, so actually, uh, if that continues, if we don't destroy ourselves, uh, that would mean that uh, gradually more larger and larger uh, parts of first our immediate, in immediate uh, cosmic vicinity solar system, inner solar system first, and then the entire solar system uh, will be managed by intelligence by our descendants in a similar way. Uh, and in talking about our descendants, I do not want preclude any cow whatever, whatever, whether it will be some humans or post-humans or artificial intelligent robots or whatever, whoever, yeah, but something which has a kind of phylogenetic continuity with ourselves. Uh, and so if we suppose that such chain of events is typical, if we are good Copernicans and suppose that this is typical, then we would expect such chain of events to have been repeated many, many times in galactic history. And then we uh, could ask the question whether if it repeats for long enough time and you expect that uh, bigger and bigger pieces of the galaxy are intelligently managed and put into service of some, I don't know, technological uh, uh, wonders or like, I don't know, converted into Dyson spheres or other other large-scale artifacts or in some to some mega computers or whatever, uh, then uh, we would expect to be able to see at least some indirect traces of it, which we don't. Now, it is possible, of course, that uh, uh, that we are simply not imaginative enough to <laughs> explain some of uh, unexplained features of our astronomical uh, world or our of our simply things which are in our astronomical databases and which are perhaps un uh, unexplained so far, or perhaps there is a better explanation that those are results of uh, intentional intelligent activity that is possible and so in a sense it represents in many SETI related discussions the best case it is conceivable possible and uh, some optimists would say even likely that actually somewhere in our nowadays huge astronomical databases uh, which are nowadays uh, also one should uh, keep in mind produced mostly by machines with uh, some human supervision but nowadays you, you have almost completely automated surveys of the sky at various frequencies in various band passes uh, and uh, at various various resolutions exposure times blah 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 uh, so then there is a 
huge pile of astronomical data uh, which simply has not been studied so far by human astronomers in or uh, has not been studied in detail uh, by human astronomers so it is possible that there are some things of interest to uh, astrobiologists and uh, searchers for techno signatures which is a new term which came a bit uh, more politically correct to substitute for old SETI terminology, old search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Now we are speaking more about search for technosignatures, uh, which is actually a good development. I mean, if, it's, if it is going to resolve the old problems, mostly problems of optics, uh, but in a kind of societal and media sense uh, that uh, the old classical SETI projects had. And if it is going to attract more funding, I mean, then, then it's, it's, it's a great stuff. So uh, actually, we'll continue to call it uh, search for technosignatures. Maybe there are technosignatures which have been observed in a formal sense, but uh, has not been uh, actually uh, recognized as such. Uh, and of course, maybe we just need to search more carefully, more diligently, and um, above everything else, more patiently. So a, a number of things I want to touch on there. The Maybe the first one would be the fact that, um, you know, on this question of intelligence being a lethal mutation and people saying, well, you know what, we don't really know because we don't really have the, uh, we don't know how this story turns out. Um, and it feels like that is kind of true across a range of questions uh, around this paradox of, hey, you know, we don't know. Maybe, you know, it, it's hard to prove a negative, you know, like there's all kinds of reports of UFOs, etc. And who knows? Maybe some of them are accurate. Maybe they are they are present, but they're you know if they're so technologically superior, uh, they're they're excellent at uh, evading detection. These kinds of things. Um, so I, I guess on that note, given all the unknowns and um, how perhaps intractable this problem is, given our limited information set. Um, what do you see as the value of pursuing uh, this question? Okay, that's that's a, a kind of complex one as well. Uh, listen, uh, one uh, one obvious uh, obvious value in in this is a purely cognitive one. I mean, which we simply wish to understand uh, better the not only our place in the universe, but uh, simply the structure of the universe as it pertains to biology and, of course, to those things which follow from biology, uh, including all those manifestations of uh, mind, uh, mental phenomena, intelligence, whatever you wish to call that. Uh, so these are, if you are a naturalist by kind of fundamental philosophical epistemological uh, orientation or provenance. Uh, so if you're a naturalist, then uh, simply we have observed that there is life and intelligence and, I don't know, other mental phenomena, emotions and, uh, I don't know, tool-making capacity on Earth. It is quite natural to, to ask the question whether it is a uh, it is just a fluke or it is just some common occurrence. After all, if you are a naturalist, then you expect that uh, ultimately life, intelligence, emotions, whatever, will be explained in terms of natural law in the same manner as phenomena belonging to, I don't know, chemistry or thermodynamics or or geology, or I don't know, the motions of tectonic plates and other stuff which were mysterious at some point, but were eventually explained uh, by natural laws. So uh, we actually, uh, it is quite obviously an ex extension of our age-old curiosity, which led to uh, emergence of science as human activity. 
but there are there are, there are much more much, uh, there are many more issues there because after all if you are like there is uh, what uh, i think is very relevant there is a kind of a or moral value as well uh, because if you are uh, thinking about future and if you are thinking about future that it was noticed by philosophers long time ago i think by socrates as well that uh, you know you think about uh, what is good for your children and then you think also what is good for your grandchildren and perhaps this goes further and further as our species ethically improves or we hope at least that it morally improves uh, and uh, we are not living in i don't know slaveholding society like socrates did so actually there are some signs that we are morally improving uh, and in that sense uh, our long-term future is obviously obviously uh, not only influenced by to a large extent determined to large-scale properties of our uh, astronomical astrophysical environment including those things which are relevant for the questions whether there are habitable planets elsewhere uh, and if there are whether there are actually inhabited or not and this directly leads us to questions uh, of uh, farther deep deep future of uh, of uh, human beings as well and of all other values which human beings created whatever they are i mean we can dispute whether you know one guy has one uh, view of uh, human values the other has another but uh, almost all ethical system and almost all views of human values actually are uh, in the long um, uh, influenced by what's going on in the wider universe. So it is actually something that's also a continuation of uh, uh, of uh, the evolutionary world view, just the, or just on a larger scale. After all, uh, the if in a counterfactual thought experiments, if for instance humans evolved solely near their place of origin solely near i don't know east africa in what's today's modern day uganda and tanzania and a few other states uh, if we remained there for all times uh, our view of the world and our values would have been much much different than than they are now so in a sense a broadening of our view and broadening of our spatial distribution if you wish uh, uh, is uh, absolutely uh, inseparable from a question uh, from the question of our moral values and of course i mean if you wish to go into much further details you, you can perceive that uh, um, a large part of contemporary culture and contemporary pop culture if, if you wish is concerned with issues such as extraterrestrial life extraterrestrial intelligence yes. long-term future of humanity and stuff so if we if we uh, in a sense, uh, in a sense, this is a natural thing again. I mean, that is that this is something which accompanied uh, previous large-scale changes in uh, human lifestyle. I mean, in the time of industrial revolution, uh, there were all kinds of, you know, even poets uh, wrote about uh, poems about steam engines and about uh, uh, steam locomotions and uh, train tracks and uh, stuff like this I and mean, this is just a company uh, this is something which uh, we see which is accompanying uh, something which happens on a deep level in human culture uh, although often it is contemporaries who simply fail to see it I mean uh, you see it mostly in retrospect as in as in all great changes. What, what, what do you think then about these uh, recent developments where people have, um, there are now whistleblowers uh, apparently in, um, in the United States Congress saying that they have, uh, you know, the United States has uh, recovered uh, foreign craft with uh, non, you know, human biological uh, traces, um, these sorts of things. 
And, and, you know, remains to be seen. Obviously, it's an extraordinary claim. They have yet to provide extraordinary evidence. Um, but there have also been, you know, a number of other, say, sightings of, um, you know, craft that seem to, you know, quote unquote, uh, defy laws of gravity, etc. I'm sure you're familiar with this as well. Um, okay. Have you adjusted your your priors at all based on this information? Uh, listen, uh, OK, I am. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> there are many many things to be said about that as well. Uh, I uh, personally remain uh, skeptical until I see more. Simply, we need to to wait to whether there will be some some further and there will be whether there will be some evidence which is really tangible. I mean, it is quite okay. I mean, the people have been speaking about this uh, for quite quite a long time, and in a sense, it reminds me of the situation in which, uh, by the way, this is not something new. Uh, although it is new, uh, as uh, great psychologist Carl Gustav Jung uh, actually argued in, uh, he wrote a book on, uh, on UFOs, uh, which is one of the best books actually on UFOs ever written, uh, in which he argued that this is a simply uh, substitute mythology. This is a mythology of modern day of uh, 20th century, which substituted a little bit for mythology of, say, Middle Ages, where people claimed to have seen different things, which are also, uh, which were also, uh, in a sense, irreconcilable with everyday experience, and which also, like, uh, brought into doubt some uh, uh, some common sense uh, ideas at the, at the time, uh, but which were influenced uh, by the then prevailing ideology of, say, Roman Catholic, uh, if we uh, talk about uh, Western Europe, uh, Middle Ages. Uh, the thing is uh, that um, there is, a, I'm skeptical because there is a kind of a deep, paradox linked to the idea that uh, you know there will be a kind of advanced very advanced extraterrestrial intelligence because if they have come to earth they haven't come to earth from mars or jupiter or uh, uranus or i don't know Kuiperbell bell objects uh, they have come from inter interterrestrial of inter interstellar space and uh, from other stars. Now, interstellar space is so vast and interstellar travel is so difficult then uh, that one really needs quite advanced technology. To expect that after traveling some like, I don't know, like parsecs, which are, which are thousands of billions of kilometers uh, that uh, they will so easily crash and so be so easily recoverable uh, by rather primitive human uh, forces even some uh, you know like whatever whatever was used actually to recover storage them etc I think it's a little bit naive because people simply tend to um, underestimate difficulties uh, which are associated with interstellar flight of any kind, and especially of interstellar flight of biological entities. Because after all, I would expect uh, that uh, even if there are some intelligent visitations to our solar system. One would expect that those are simply robots and automatic crafts and some artificial intelligence, uh, which were designed to sustain, for instance, huge accelerations and uh, other, uh, other hostile conditions associated with interstellar travel, much, much better than any biological entity. And it doesn't, I mean, uh, if you, you take even you know, like cockroaches and other insects or, or very primitive and very robust biological entities. Uh, all biological entities are, uh, by very definition, pretty fragile when compared to, uh, say, automated probes or, or robots. So you wouldn't really expect, uh, you would expect uh, biological entities to be last things, uh, not the first things which, which you see uh, when we discuss we discuss possible in the direct physical interaction with extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is that uh, 
You know, there are, and as Jung pointed out in that book, which was written back in, I don't know, 1950s or something, after the first great wave of uh, UFO seeing, uh, there have been uh, correlations with events in human history, which is which would be rather uh, uh, improbable to say at least. I mean, if you consider uh, if you consider real extraterrestrial origin of uh, of uh, such uh, either craft or artifacts or or whatever, because uh, it was uh, it, it came in uh, waves and those waves were associated with uh, some crisis in uh, human history. So at some points, uh, probably the probably the lower uh, the lowest points for uh, alleged sightings of UFOs was, was say in the 1990s or something around the turn of the century uh, when it was. Uh, uh, at least there was a kind of uh, media projection that uh, those were uh, years of, uh, uh, you know, peace and prosperity, mostly with some exceptions, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, but but uh, but mo mostly. And whenever there is a kind of uh, a political, social, economic crisis, you you have a sort of uptick in. Uh, sightings of UFOs, and you also have, uh, coincidentally, uh, and it, it is also something which Jung actually wrote about, uh, you, you have a, a corresponding uptick in uh, like reports of religious miracles as well, which is uh, which quite, which is quite suspicious and actually actually suggests that there is a sort of a, it's, it's more something of an uh, of a psychological phenomenon then that there is the thing which is of course there are many things which are unexplained and this is uh, this is true for you know atmospheric phenomena as well uh, you know atmospheric phenomena uh, can sometimes be extremely misleading uh, and there was uh, there was a famous uh, famous case uh, back in 1980 three or four, if I remember correctly, when actually atmospheric phenomenon almost perfectly simulated the launch of uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles at one of uh, the most uh, dramatic points of tension in the Cold War. So actually, if, uh, if it were not for Stanislav Petrov, who died a couple of, a couple of years ago, who actually concluded that this is a false alarm. It is quite possible that we wouldn't have been having this conversation here because the mm -hmm. Earth would have been destroyed in a global nuclear war and nuclear winter back in 1980s. So, um, uh, and that is exactly, that everything was, and that was a consequence of an anomalous, anomalous atmospheric phenomena, which is related to some layer inversions in the atmosphere and uh, anomalous uh, radar signals, which uh, such an inversion produces, etc. So, uh, actually, there is much that we don't know about the atmosphere, about uh, our, in the, like, uh, Orbital space around around Earth and uh, objects which are simply sometimes simply uh, human objects which were not publicized or which are not real uh, in some uh, catalogs of uh, like uh, you know catalog which are some uh, black or top secret satellites and there are other things which are uh, simply uh, simply could mimic uh, many of the observed UFO phenomena. Now as to specific material evidence, I would be very happy to see it. And I actually am rather eager to hear about uh, the news on, on that front, whether, whether there are some specific physical artifacts which can be identified of extraterrestrial origin. That would be the, the that would be absolutely what what was called experimentum crucis or cr crucial experiment, crucial test of everything. I mean, I remain skeptical until I see uh, something of uh, of that nature. I, I think that's uh, a fair attitude on that. Um, it, it is interesting, though. It reminds me of, of for all the people who are engaged scientifically in trying to answer this question, uh, as opposed to just, you know, uh, a lay person like myself. Um, it does kind of, I forget the name of the story, but there was a novel 
uh, written uh, sometime in the 20th century mm-hmm. about a person who becomes a, they dedicate their life to uh, guarding this castle and they are constant, you know, it's constant vigilance uh, that takes up their entire life. That's all their problem solving and relationships sort of, uh, you know, revolve around this endeavor and no one ever comes to attack it uh, and then they die. And it feels like there's a little bit of that with um, scientists who may dedicate them themselves to this question uh, where constantly, you know, preparing, exercising skepticism, uh, and then, you know, maybe the answer never comes in, in one's lifetime. Um, it, is that something that bothers you on any level? Uh, do, I mean, surely you want an answer. Uh, listen, uh, in a sense, uh, yes, you're right. And it is, uh, uh, but uh, it is bothersome somewhat. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I'm, uh, you know, if you are, working in a field uh, like uh, astronomy and related sciences, cosmology, even geology, evolutionary biology, you know that things can happen very slowly. And that obviously a human lifetime is incommensurable with these uh, huge intervals of deep time. So that is exactly the reason why the discovery of deep time back in 18, late 18, early 19th century uh, was so big a thing uh, in, in, in natural science in general. In, in, that, case, in, in that time, they still called themselves, uh, you know, natural philosophers or things like this. But right. when they discovered that, that, that there were millions of years in, say, geology or paleontology, and then that uh, fossil, uh, some dinosaur fossil was like uh, 70 million years old or something like this, uh, that was a really great, great discovery. Something which is so overwhelming when compared to human uh, lifetime and the general human time scales uh, is simply that is a evolutionary reality. So you actually have to uh, make your peace with it. I mean, anyway, so yeah, people who are studying, for instance, stellar evolution, for instance, I mean, they also know that uh, to uh, you know, there are some stars like our sun, which uh, burn hydrogen for about 10 billion years and then gradually leave main sequence and become red giants and asymptotic giants and blah, 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 before either exploding or becoming white dwarfs like our sun will become in like about six, seven billion years. Uh, those people are simply, I mean, this is, that is, that's one of the theory of stellar evolution is one of the best understood and best confirmed of our scientific theories ever. And it is simply, I mean, it's, it's perhaps not known enough in, in a wider society, but this is absolutely stunning and, you know, like flabbergasting that people were able to predict the one of my teachers uh, James Latimer was a part of uh, part of that I mean they were able to predict for instance uh, the number of neutrinos detected from a supernova when it exploded in 1987 this supernova SN 1987a which exploded in Magellanic cloud which is another galaxy is a satellite galaxy to, to the Milky Way, it is close by, but it is still another galaxy. And they were able actually to, they predicted that with given detectors at the time that we will detect something like uh, uh, 16 plus or minus five uh, neutrinos. And actually people detected, I think, 18 or something like this. It's absolutely fantastic when you think that those neutrinos traveled uh, about like, 150,000 years before being detected detected yeah. by, by our detectors uh, so uh, actually uh, the, the, we have uh, we have kind of confirmation 
of various things which we cannot directly observe often because simply our uh, lifetime is uh, is too short uh, but if there are, if there are many of them if you have a kind of a larger sample we can simply investigate how um, how various stages of development manifest themselves so that is a reason why by the way i think that uh, there is a continuity and uh, this is this has become for uh, for reasons which are not entirely scientific which have more to do with uh, things like politics and uh, funding of science and uh, uh, and some like uh, media perspectives uh, there is a kind of um, discontinuity between people who were engaged in in SETI or in search for techno signatures, as we would say today, uh, and uh, the rest of astrobiological enterprise or the rest of search, search for life in general in the universe or studying life in yeah. its most general cosmic context. Uh, and that's very unfortunate. And I think that uh, luckily enough in last, say, six, seven, 10 years, starting roughly from about maybe 2015, uh, roughly speaking, uh, this rift has finally begun to, to close and, and heal. And so we actually nowadays are really uh, eager to admit that there is a kind of quite natural continuity, evolutionary continuity, if you wish, between life per se and intelligent life and manifestations of intelligent life so that is exactly uh, why uh, the search for techno signatures is of course a part of a general search for biosignatures anywhere uh, which is something which is a very hot topic and it is hot topic in both theoretical and uh, observational experimental circles because uh, not only some of uh, uh, very uh, realistic near future cosmic missions uh, may actually discover a lot of biosignatures. It is now shown that uh, that you can you can actually detect some very uh, rare or normal trace uh, signatures of uh, some trace gases in the atmosphere. It can. Uh, it has been argued even that uh, one could even go further and, for instance, detect uh, uh, in uh, atmospheres of Earth-like extrasolar planets uh, traces which would point out to problems analogous to the problem which we are having right now with uh, anthropogenic emission of greenhouse gases. Uh, so that they will actually uh, be able to detect uh, some immature civilizations like our, like ours, which uh, has problems with uh, balancing uh, uh, emissions of uh, of climate sensitive gases, so to speak. Uh, so actually, this is uh, and these are very good news. I think that perhaps in the next ten or next 10 to 20 years will uh, really have a kind of a mini revolution in that respect and that uh, um, it is quite uh, plausible to me and quite realistic that uh, some uh, biosignatures at least the simplest ones uh, pointing kind of uh, primitive uh, prokaryotic uh, bacterial alike life uh, elsewhere will come much sooner than expected maybe in uh, next 10 to 20 years uh, uh, which is hopefully enough within our lifetimes let's hope um milan i think that that's a great note to end it on um the the book is the great silence uh science and philosophy of fermi's paradox uh thank you once again uh, you're welcome. I'll just mention that the, the book is currently uh, in uh, available just in the hard copy from Oxford University Press, but hopefully enough in uh, we have actually uh, obtained the permission, but have haven't actually yet prepared a paperback edition which will 
uh, hopefully again be more accessible to 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 public. Uh, so actually, there will be uh, somewhat mildly improved and mildly brought up to date uh, paperback edition very soon. It's a question of months now. I hope. Excellent. Uh, yes. Anywhere else that people can go to uh, to find your work if they're more curious? Uh, listen, um, uh, some of uh, interesting. Uh, okay, there will be there will be another another book rather soon by Cambridge University Press. Uh, this time, which pertains to another issue, another of my favorite issues, uh, which are like uh, a kind of uh, history and philosophy of cosmology, uh, which is how get to know these large-scale uh, things about the universe and this one pertains to uh, history of discovery and of our correct interpretation of the cosmic microwave background which is something uh, everybody uh, can hear for her or himself uh, by say tuning this some of these old radios if they still have uh, the, them between those uh, between well-defined human radio stations and you see noise and you hear noise and when you hear noise uh, about say like uh, 30 or 40 or maybe up to 50 uh, percent of that noise if you are uh, far from urban areas uh, is actually due to the cosmic microwave background which are photons emitted about 300,000 years after the Big Bang, which that means traveled like 99.9999, etc. percent of the age of the universe before coming into your radio. So uh, actually, this is the most important, perhaps, cosmological tool of today. So that book will be coming shortly by um, Cambridge University Press. And of course, there are uh, all kinds of, uh, I'm present on all those uh, uh, academic networks, as they are called, like academia.edu and uh, researchgate.edu. So, and of course, Google Scholar, if somebody is really <laughs> kind of, curious so uh, everything is there nowadays online excellent uh well thank you i appreciate it and uh great discussion uh thank you thank you so much duncan i mean that was very interesting and your podcast is actually uh, really interesting and uh, you had some great guests and uh, it is just my honor to be among them so i hope there will be some opportunity in the future to make a kind of follow-up Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Again. Bye-bye. See you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you to Milan Cherkovich and thank you for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.